But I'm really excited to because Song of Songs uh, was extremely important for me. It still is today, uh, preparing this week. Extremely important in college uh, at a time when um, sexual desire, uh, the sin that surrounds that uh, was really invading my life and invading a lot of the, the guys around me, especially guys um, that I was uh, being discipled by and I was discipling. And so this is a really important book for me. Uh, and the, the books written around it, the commentaries around it were so important to me. Uh, and so I'm excited uh, to go through it uh, with you today. But first, uh, I do want to touch on something but way before Song of Songs in Genesis. And so we're going to read Genesis 1st chapter 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, birds of the sky, every creature that crawls in the earth. And then we get a more detailed view of that process in chapter 2 and verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man who slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. And the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet they felt no shame. And so this is important to start with because I've heard this from a couple pastors. I've heard it a few times, uh, and it's really important for us to know now, really important for me to hear in college. Um, and this is something we're reminded of as we go through Song of Songs. Here it is. God created sex. If you did not know that, there it is. Um, and I think the joke around it is that Satan did not drop in at any point during that creation. We just read it. Did not drop in and add any new sinful body parts. He did not plant this warm feeling of attraction that should be sinful. He did none of that. God created all of this. And so... In the way he intended, God made sex a gift for us. And in that same vein, attraction has to be that too. Because without attraction, I'm not sure that Adam would have said, Whoa, man, that was a dumb joke. I've heard that, whatever. He wouldn't have said that. There, there has to be attraction there. And so this feeling that we get when we're attracted to someone and the idea that this concept of sex, we cannot look at it as sin because it's not sin. God created it and he intended it for be, to be a gift for us. And so we have to fight this feeling, this uncomfortable feeling we get around this topic of sex, song of songs, this whole idea, because God created this. And so when it comes to our marriages, to be open with our spouse about struggles, expectations, with our kids, not pushing them towards shame when they start to have these feelings, uh, or just ignoring it totally, uh, what if we instead at an early age teach a godly, healthy view of sex? combating against what the world says sex is. Because that is what screwed this up. Right after God created this gift for Adam and Eve, the same man and woman then rebelled against God, causing sin to enter the world. Um, this world has destroyed and distorted what God intended for sex to be. Um, and we are definitely not exempt from this. Uh, we are sinful beings who often have a very selfish and prideful view of everything God has given to us. And so this sin 
It's why it's difficult to talk about these things all the time. Uh, it's why people involved in sexual relations outside of marriage will never find satisfaction in it. And it is why we have rape, affairs, and divorce. This is what we're fighting against daily. Not just a sexual sin um, that surrounds our world, that it's everywhere really when you look. But this sin entirely, um, this is what we're fighting against daily as a body of believers. Uh, but thank you, Father, that we are not alone for this. He does not intend us to be alone for this fight. And so today, we're going to look at Song of Songs again uh, to gain wisdom, understanding for what we need in our relationships, our marriages. We're going to pray first. Father, thank you so much that, again, we are not alone in this fight. You've given us a body of believers who loves us. You've given us your word. And most of all, you've given us your son to act as our propitiation, dying for our sins, saving us forever. That no matter how often the magnitude of it, how we're surrounded by sin daily, that we get to turn to you. That you don't see that sin, you see Jesus, God. Thank you so much for that truth beyond anything we can learn about marriage and relationships, God. Uh, that is above all, that we get you. Thank you for the gospel. Amen. All right. And so if you were not here last week, um, Kendrick laid out um, a really good overview of the book uh, because we're only going to be in Song of Songs for last week and this week, two weeks. And I joked with uh, Jared uh, Wednesday at the prayer gathering that I think we can either go through Song of Songs in eight sermons or one, uh, but we're going to do it in two. Uh, I think Kendrick did a great job last week um, really summing up everything, uh, but we're going to really focus on uh, two or three things uh, in this book uh, that are extremely important, I think, uh, as a body of believers, uh, to know together, to believe together, uh, and to charge uh, with each other uh, against this sin that we're fighting for, fighting against, we're not fighting for sin. Um, all right, so first we're going to look at Song of, so Song of Songs, uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 3. Like an apricot tree among the trees of the forest, so is my love among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade. His fruit is sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banquet hall. He looked on me with love. Sustain me with raisins. Refresh me with apricots, for I am lovesick. May his left hand be under my head. His right arm embrace me. So if you didn't know already, uh, here it is again. Our woman here, Shunlite woman, is very, very attracted to this guy. Uh, and as a reminder, like we talked about before, nothing is wrong with attraction. She is lovesick, and she needs to be sustained. Sustained. But before that sustaining can happen, she gives us some really, really good wisdom to live by in the next verse. Verse 7. Young women of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and the wild does of the field, do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. She also repeats this in chapter 3, but we're going to jump to chapter 8. Language might get a little weird here, but bear with me. In 8, in eight uh, starting in verse 1, If only I could treat you like my brother, one who nursed at my mother's breast, I would find you in public and kiss you, and no one would scorn me. 
I would lead you, I would take you to the house of my mother who taught me. I would give you spice wine to drink from the juice of my pomegranate. May his left hand be under my head and his right arm embrace me. And so now we're at the end of the book. Uh, we're out of that uh, chapter two in the dating or the engaged period. We're at chapter eight, the end. This couple is no longer dating. Uh, they are married, probably married for a long time. Uh, and so the context of the first verse, the brother thing, uh, all the commentaries I read, uh, and I would agree with that, I hope you would too, um, that public displays of affection were frowned upon at this time. Uh, and so uh, between spouses, uh, but not family members. And so she wants to love on her man as much as she can in public and private uh, and not catch any flack for it. Uh, and so she does not want to date her brother. She doesn't want to marry her brother. Don't worry about that. Um, that's what she means. She loves the student. She wants to show it to everybody. Uh, and then verse two means exactly what you think it means. Uh, and so after the years of marriage, the ups and downs, the love is definitely there. The attraction, physical intimacy is still there. And it's really beautiful to think about this. But then right after describing what she wants to do with her guy, what do we see again? Verse four, Young women of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. So that's again, in total, three times in one book. Really repetitive, but maybe it's there that many times so that the reader will definitely pay attention to this. And over here, side note, for all the married people out there, um, do not do the opposite of this. And so if you're a married guy, uh, older, strong believer, you're loving, you're discipling younger guys, uh, and you're leading a pickup basketball game, don't say something like, see you later guys, gonna have sex with my wife, um, because that helps no one. Uh, because the college guys don't immediately think, wow, I cannot wait to find a wife, to grow together, to build a family with her, to love and serve her well. No, that goes straight to sex. That's it. Uh, so don't do it. And that is not a hypothetical situation. Definitely happened multiple times. The same guy every time. So anyway, um, but back to this. I was not pointing any guy. I told no. I told my wife this morning, I'm like, hey, I'm going to mention this. And you're the only one gets to know who this is about. But no one else gets to know. Anyway, no certain guys in here. No, sorry, I promise. Maybe. I'm not sure, though. All right. But anyway, back to this. Uh, what... Um, what the woman in Song of Songs is saying uh, is definitely extremely helpful, as opposed to someone who would do the opposite. She has gone through the attraction, the dating, the waiting, the engagement period, the wedding, the wedding night, everything else in this long, joy-filled, hard, fulfilling marriage. And after it all, she says this, do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. She does not say, to be honest, I really wish we would have given into our sexual desires when the attraction first hit or sometime during that super long engagement period. Uh, no, she says to wait, and there's got to be a reason behind this. It can't just be a rule like, hey, remember, don't have sex until you're married. It can't just be that. There's got to be a reason that she's saying this right now. And so I have recently got into smoking meats. Didn't see that coming, did you? Um, for some reason, I have probably the YouTube advertisements uh, that plague me. Um, and so what that means is I've watched a lot of smoking videos, and I have smoked a pork butt, which is actually the pig's shoulder. If you didn't know that, there you go. If you don't learn anything today, there it is. Um, I actually oversmoked some steaks, uh, and I smoked chicken, 
that had probably too much pepper on it, but the pulled pork was really good, right? Yeah, they know. Uh, I invited people over to have the pulled pork. But anyway, um, I'm not really skilled in it, but eventually uh, I will soon attempt to smoke a brisket. And it is known to be this really tedious, long process that you've got to really prepare for because one thing goes wrong, you mess it up. But anyway, researching, YouTube videos, uh, something happens when that brisket in the smoker hits about 150. So it's climbing, it's climbing, it's climbing, hits 150 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, 150 to 170, and something happens called a stall. And so what that means is it's climbing, it's climbing, it's climbing, and then it just hits there and it plateaus for a really long time. And so what's happening uh, is the heat in that smoker is getting so hot that it's uh, evaporating the moisture inside the meat, and it's causing that meat to tighten up. And so if you are smoking this brisket, you're checking the temperature inside, and you're seeing, okay, it's been climbing for a while, and it's, it's hit this plateau, I guess it's ready. And you take it out at that point, you're gonna have a very dry, tough meat, rather than uh, pushing through that stall uh, and finding out what God intended for when he created cows. Uh, we went to Austin a few weeks ago, and I had like good barbecue for the first time, Life has changed forever. But if you push through that stall, you're going to see what it's intended to be. And so food is definitely not sex, no matter how good food is, but this definitely applies. For waiting until the appropriate time, you're going to see what it was intended to be, what this gift was intended to be. And so what is this gift intended to be? What's it supposed to be? Kendrick mentioned last week uh, this idea of sex in a fireplace or in a fire in the middle of your living room. It can be one of two things. Sex in marriage is this warm, cozy fireplace. Sex outside of marriage is this fire in the middle of your living room and you don't know how to stop it. You can't control it. It's destroying everything. And so off of that, uh, Matt Chandler uh, says in his book, Meaning of Souls, keeping a fire going in a fireplace within a marriage requires boundaries and appropriate fuel. In marriage, that fuel is growing respect, tenderness, admiration, mutual, mutual desires and dreams, mutual Christ-like relationships with others, memories, traditions established over time, romance, the ongoing ex expressions of affection, and so forth. And so what this means is that our marriages, that warm, cozy fire in the fireplace, needs fuel. All these good things that we experience with our spouse is fuel to that fire. And so what I think we, we may be getting at here, and then if we polled every married couple in the room, is this, marriage is much more than the physical act of sex. We see this. I think we know this. Two people growing to know each other and loving each other more than anyone else knows them in the world. That is what it's intended to be. Uh, but also, don't miss this. All that living, all those good things that we build up with each other, develops so much more when it does come to the physical aspect of sex. And so with attraction, when we're just simply thinking about attraction, when my wife, Chandler, serves me in different ways, when she makes pancakes the other morning, when she makes any kind of good food for us, uh, when she buys me a pack of my favorite socks, uh, while she's grocery shopping, she didn't have to, I got them on today. Uh, when she shows out with creativity, handmade cards that I would like never be able to recreate in any way. Um, I'm attracted to her in those ways because she's serving me, she's loving me, and she knows what that means to me. And so she's also attracted to me sometimes uh, when I get stuff done around the house. 
uh, without her asking, when she watches me and Lucy play together after she's had a long day at work, uh, when I bring home two pints of ice cream instead of one that she asked for, um, she's attracted to me, I think. She's attracted to me in those ways. And that's nothing I'm doing that is like sex or anything. I just know how to love her. I know how to serve her. And so that it does that for that too. And so we absolutely did not see those things feel those things, know those things when we were dating or even while we were engaged. Um, and so not speaking for Chan, but most of the time I was focused on the physical attraction, being uh, a really extremely selfish and dumb guy. Um, that was me, maybe not her. But in a gospel-centered marriage, you begin to really know each other, how to graciously serve the other, whether we're talking about the physical aspect of things or maybe later in years when that desire is not strong enough. It's much more than sex. Marriage is much, it's intended to be much more than that. And so I think at the time, before I was married, that's the only thing I thought of. It's like, when I finally get married, I get to finally have that gift. Man, that's gonna be amazing. I get married, that's a great gift. I love that gift, but it's so much more than that. But sexual intimacy outside of marriage does not have this healthy fuel. This growing knowledge and understanding of each other outside of marriage, sex is all about self-gratification and fulfilling personal desires. Do not awaken love until it's time because if we do, you'll stop talking, you'll stop learning how to communicate better, stop learning what makes the other person who they are and what's, best, what's the best way to love and serve that person. You'll only use each other physically and it will probably be enjoyable for a little while but it will leave you hollow and wanting more, whether it be from that same person or someone else entirely. So singles, dating, engaged, hear this plea in Song of Songs. Do not awaken love until the appropriate time. But this is not just for people who are not married in the room. Married people, parents of people who are single, how are we as a community of believers, whether you're a part of this church or a part of another church, how are we praying and discipling people that are going through this. So I've got a few years before this has to happen, or maybe Lucy like never have experienced this kind of stuff. Probably so. Um, but parents, are we teaching our kids a godly view of sex? Teaching them the dangers of stirring up this love before the right time? Praying that be protected from this sin? That they always run to Christ instead of that sin? Praying they seek and find a spouse who loves Jesus and loves and serves them well. Are we doing that for our kids who are not married yet? But even if you don't have kids, we do all know people who are single uh, and dating or not dating anyone. Um, they love Jesus, but they struggle with this to some extent. Pretty sure. Um, are we there to point them back to the gospel? Uh, not speaking of the sexual intimacy that we have with our spouse in a way that someday they might get to experience it, but instead talking about it as a small part that this gift of marriage, what God is intended to be. Are we discipling our singles well? Are we discipling these people around us well? Are we praying for them as they struggle with this? Because it is devastating and I think, I, I know this from experience, when young guys, junior high to high school, guys specifically don't know how girls deal with this, um, struggle with this sexual, sexual immorality. Brothers around them are too afraid, too embarrassed to talk about it with them. It's just, it's weird to talk about. And then when finally someone wants to approach you with it, uh, it's too late. Um, they have built this idea up in their head about what sex is supposed to be to them. 
fulfilling their own desires, and it's definitely a lie. They know it, but they cannot deal with it. They just bury it deep down so they don't have to deal with the shame. There's that shame there. They don't want to deal with it, so they just bury it down. Uh, so if you're not discipling uh, young people, older people, whatever it is, who are not married, it's devastating. So the charge, do not stir up or awaken this gift from God until the appropriate time. All right, so moving on uh, to this next point in Song of Songs. We know now the dangers of awakening this love too soon. We see what God has intended for sex in marriage to be. But now we've got to talk about how marriage is not perfect. You didn't know that. Here we go. So in uh, chapter 2, right after this charge to not awaken love to the appropriate time, in verse 8, it says, Listen, my love is approaching. Look, here he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My love is like a gazelle or a young stag. See, he is standing behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. My love calls to me. Arise, my darling. Come away, my beautiful one. For now the winter is past. The rain has ended and gone away. The blossoms appear in the countryside. The time of singing has come. And the turtle of cooing is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs. The blossoming vines give off their fragrance. Arise, my darling. Come away, my beautiful one. My dove in the clefts of the rocks, in the crevices of the cliff. Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. Your voice is sweet. Your face is lovely. So here we are back again with this dating, this engaged, this courtship uh, period in our young couple's life. Uh, We see clearly they still enjoy each other very much, just as you probably were when you were dating or engaged someone. That warm feeling, that excitement to see them every day, that you're driving however many hours every day just to go spend a few minutes with them. doesn't matter. You're in love, and that's beautiful. But then, verse 15, she says, Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, for our vineyards are in bloom. And so, whether she is speaking directly to her man or whether she's speaking to a third party, something has come up. This, this big passage of happiness, this love, they love each other. It's so exciting. But then something comes up. These little foxes that ruin the vineyard. So if we understand this vineyard to represent their relationship, their future marriage, uh, we can probably assume these foxes are issues that have come up between them in their time of knowing each other. And so for me, before March of 2016, no matter how many people told me marriage would be difficult, in the back of my head, I still thought like, yeah, but it's not that hard. It's not that, it's, it's gonna be, it's gonna be fine. We're just two simple humans coming together from completely different families, different expectations. We don't make a ton of money. We live in an apartment in Western Road that kind of sounds like cigarettes. And then a month into it, we throw a dog into the mix too. It's gonna be fine. It's not gonna be hard at all, I promise. I had no idea about the foxes that would be attempting to ruin this vineyard. We slowly come to the realization that no matter how many of these foxes you catch, get rid of, kill them, whatever you do, new foxes keep coming. And then that one fox you caught in like the first month of being married comes back two years later. doesn't matter. It's still there constantly. Issues and problems coming between us, coming between our marriages. 
So no, no matter how long you've been together, no, no matter how much you love your spouse, problems are going to come up. And so we've only been married for three years now, and I know this. You're going to have really hard seasons when your family cannot seem to catch a break. You're going to have really great seasons when everything is going out, like working out so well, God is giving you peace about everything. Uh, but if you have this thought that your relationship or maybe your future relationship um, is not going to have these foxes ruining this vineyard, that probably means you're ignoring them. Because I've been there too. We've been there too. We're, to ignore them is tough. But how are we to address these issues, these foxes, if we're not being open about them with each other? If we're too embarrassed or we make assumptions without communicating, how long does it take for something to grow into something really dangerous, something that's not that big of a deal, to grow into something that is huge? So if we do look at this woman seeking help from a third party, uh, what does this mean for us today? Has the issue got to the point where you need marriage counseling? Maybe it's a good idea to start something like that before it's absolutely needed. Uh, what about the people around us? Someone who's not a professional counselor. Um, with us, specifically with commissional communities, we have other couples also working through issues who love us. We love each other. We want to gospel and pray for one another no matter what. And so I can go to someone like Scott because he's like way older than me. He's been way married way longer than me um, for like big, just kidding, big picture wisdom stuff that I cannot even imagine seeing us develop in our marriage. Or I go to Stogner, who's only been married a couple years more than more than me and Chan, um, and see how that how that they dealt with the same issues we might be having. Um, we have a community of believers surrounding us who love us. We can go to all the time, no matter what. But um, we have to be open with each other for that to happen. Chan and I did premarital counseling with uh, Kendrick and Amelia, and it was easily one of the best things for us to do early on. Um, but because I was really excited about getting married uh, and the physical aspect of things, focusing and remembering every detail of that process is impossible. But what it did do was it established a really good foundation for us to see, understand, and talk through issues we have now. Uh, and so one thing I thought of, uh, a really big fox, a wolf maybe, um, that likes to ruin the vineyard. I think of everyone's uh, marriage uh, is family, uh, family issues, or could just be family differences that you, that you and your spouse have. Uh, and so a simple issue that we dealt with slash deal with uh, is dirty dishes. It sounds so dumb. Um, but uh, eventually, uh, we both found out this. Uh, at Chandler's house, growing up, uh, before she met me, while she, whatever, while we were dating, her dad always washed the dishes. No matter what, that was his thing. And so if you go to their house today, like drive to Minden, go to their house, he's going to be either fishing playing guitar or washing dishes. I guarantee it. One of those things. Uh, absolutely. That was his thing. Washing dishes was his thing. But at my house growing up, uh, specifically my mom's house, dishes was not one person's chore. Uh, whatever mom asked us or told us to do, we did it. Most of the time we did it. Um, but after I did it, I, there was this good feeling that I was a good son. My mom asked me to do something. I did it. And then my mom would walk by and see that I did what she asked. And she would appreciate this simple thing. That, was, that felt good. Like she asked me to do it, I'd do it. It was like this respect thing that a lot of kids don't have today. It's tough. Uh, 
working kids and stuff. Anyway, but there's this thing, this respect, this that she trusts me to do this, and she did it. Whatever chore it was, washing the dishes. Um, and so when we got married, Chan expected me to just do the dishes, and I expected her to ask me to do them or tell me to do them. And what would happen uh, is first they would stack up really tall to where you got to like be careful about where you put things because it's going to fall and break stuff. Anyway, it stacks up, dirty dishes, uh, and she would either wash them, be mad at me uh, without me knowing because I didn't wash the dishes without her asking, or she would, even though she's mad about it, eventually ask me to wash them. And then I would when she asked me, but then I'd be upset because she never told me what a great job I did with those dishes that I washed after she asked me to do it. And guess what? This is not just the first week of marriage. This still happens. There's dishes in our sink right now that now after saying this, I'm going to go home and wash them without her asking. She's not going to mention it. This still happens, but we realized that this was a really silly issue. But if we ignored it, this could turn into something really, really damaging. That it grows beyond that. That we look into the core of it. Um, it's going to grow beyond that. And so now, Chan knows um, that she might have to ask me to do the dishes every once in a while. Because I'm absolutely oblivious to most things that need to be going on around the house. And I now know that I need to be more aware of these things. I need to be um, doing these things around the house. Uh, and when I am... When I finish those things, whether I'm asked or not, to not expect anything in return. And sometimes Jan can tell me what a great job I did, even if it's as dumb as dishes. She can do that. We know this now, and we're dealing with it uh, because we were open about it, even though it was really silly. And so how can you, together with your spouse or your engaged relationship, your dating relationship, how can you protect the vineyard from the foxes? So my hope is that your eyes are open up to these issues that can limit a marriage to something weaker, much weaker than it, what it can be. That we not ignore these things because it's easier than dealing with this. That as a body who desires each other as the other parts of the body to be strong, we surround each other with love, with wisdom, and a constant reminder, a constant pointing to the gospel. I pray that's who we are as a people that we love our spouses well, that we love each other well. And so when we think about Song of Songs, maybe now you're thinking about not awakening love uh, until it's time. Uh, you're thinking about how to protect your marriage from these issues. Uh, but I think most of the time, before hearing a sermon about it, uh, what we think about is this erotic language or the constant jokes we make about pomegranates and that kind of stuff. Um, but this can be really unfortunate because what we saw last week, this love these two people have for each other is absolutely a picture, though paling in, in, in comparison to the love that God has for his bride, the church. But what does this love look like? I think it's a simple thing to think about uh, and talk about God's love for us. But what does it look like? Do we really understand the magnitude of his love for us. And so more talk of a vineyard is in the next book, Isaiah uh, chapter 5. I think you're only going to see the first two verses on the screen because I changed my mind this morning about what I wanted to read through. But you have Bibles and you have ears, so it's going to be okay. Isaiah chapter 5, starting verse 1. More talk of vineyards. 
I will sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The song I loved, the one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared the stones, and planted, planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and even dug out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes, sour grapes. So now, residents of Jerusalem, men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard that I did? Why, when I expected a yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? Now I will tell you what I am about to do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It will be consumed. I will tear down its wall. It will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned or weeded. Thorns and briars will grow up. I will also give orders to the clouds that rain should not fall on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, the plant he delighted in. He expected justice, but saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but heard cries of despair. So we talk about what what does love look like? (laughs) Maybe not expecting that. So this vineyard now in Isaiah uh, does not represent the same vineyard we talk about in Song of Songs uh, between a man and a woman. Instead, it represents God's people, people of Israel, his relationship with them. This plant he delighted in. But the vineyard, instead of producing good grapes to make good wine, produced worthless and sour grapes. And so... Instead of letting it continue to do that, God makes it. God's going to make it into a wasteland. He's going to get rid of it. And so if you're thinking about us as God's people, what have we done? What do we do every day? We produce these same worthless, sour grapes. We constantly turn from our Father and look to sin to rule our lives, thinking it will be better easier, thinking it will satisfy, that sin's going to satisfy, it doesn't. And even in our righteous acts, those are dirty rags too. We deserve to be rid of, to be made into this wasteland, to be rid of. But what could we get instead? Ephesians chapter 2, describing who we were, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world. According to the ruler, the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and were by nature children under wrath, as others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. That is how much our Father loves us. That no matter what, when we awaken love before it's time, when we don't serve, we don't love our spouse well, we constantly turn to sin. Because of this great love God has for us and His grace 
and his mercy instead of death, instead of this wasteland, instead of, of hell for eternity, we get Jesus instead. Something infinitely better than what we deserve. This is how much the Father loves you, loves us. What does this truth, this understanding of the gospel, change in your life when it comes to waiting for this gift, when it comes to praying and discipling others uh, who are dealing with this, when it comes to loving your spouse well? What about how you do the same for the church, how we love and serve the church? How does it compel you to make disciples every day? Out of this understanding, how do we repent of our sin and look to Jesus? Song of Songs is an amazing book about a man's love for a woman and a woman's love for this man. But we, out of this perspective, this, this big picture view of what God has done for us, we get to see something so much more than a love between a husband and a wife. We get to see that. And we also get to see this love that our Father has for us, that He gave His Son for us. And that is it. That is everything. So I hope and I pray that we live with this understanding, this devotion, desperation. For others to know that and to be reminded of that every day. God loves us and He has intended something so much more for us. Let's pray. Father, again, thank You so much for Your Word. This Gospel, this understanding of the Gospel that we get as a body of believers, as individuals, in this small picture of Your love for us, God, in Song of Songs. Thank You that no matter what, no matter what we turn to every day, that You give us this love out of nothing that we do. We can never earn it. We never have to earn it. You give it freely. Thank You so much for that, God. God, I pray that in the light of the sermon, um, this understanding of, of what Your love is for us, God, out of this that we love our spouses well. We serve them well. That when the foxes come, when issues come up, we not shy away, we not ignore it. Yeah, we deal with them. We look to You for everything, God. We serve our families well, God. I pray for all the singles, this constant issue, this constant problem with the sexual morality um, that floods our world, God. I pray that you protect them from this, God. Allow them to be open about these things, how much they're hurting. God, I pray that we are a people who loves them well, who disciples them well. Not looking to marriage or sex as the ultimate goal, but looking to our hope in you that we get to be with you someday and all this and all this world be gone in you forever, God. Thank you that that is our inheritance. That is our hope. That is what we're fighting for, God. Thank you for your son. Thank you for this body of believers. 
And I pray that we make it everything we are to glorify you in our city. We want to see people know this truth. We want to see people have peace when they are surrounded by sin, God. I pray that we are that people. We love you. Thank you so much. Amen.